God, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would just reveal to us things where perhaps we don't see you clearly, things where maybe we have been misunderstood, and God, would you reveal to us a, a more full picture of the good news of, of who you are and what you can mean for us. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak. Would any words of mine that are not in line with you, would they just fall away or fall on deaf ears? But Lord, would we just hear you clearly now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've started a new sermon series called The Gospel, and we're looking at how the good news of Jesus, that's what the gospel means, the, how the good news of Jesus impacts our past, our present, and our future. And today we, uh, we're on week two. Last week we looked at what is the gospel in sort of a high picture sense, and today what we're doing is we're looking at what it could mean for our past or what it could mean for our present to take our present reality and make it a past reality, a past way of being, and move us in to something new. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is where we're going to be through the whole of our series. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. We've got the words on the screen. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like one, we have some out in the front entrance. Feel free to grab one on your way out. It's our gift to you. Um, but here, as you're turning there, let me just fill you in. We're in a letter that was written by Peter. Uh, that's why it's called First Peter. It's the first of a couple letters he wrote to a bunch of Jesus's followers in difficult circumstances. There's a whole bunch of Jesus followers who have been scattered throughout the world at this point because they're being persecuted for their faith, and he wants to write them to encourage them. And all through First Peter, he gives these encouragements of how the good news of Jesus can make a difference in their present reality and how it should shape how they view the past and how they think about the future. And so we're right in this first part, which is sort of his thesis of the whole letter, and we're looking at verses 3 to 9 in particular because they sort of become the launch points from which everything else he has to say comes from. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, and then we're going to come and specifically sort of hone in on a couple passages which will speak to the past portion of our lives. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these things have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through the refiner, or though refined by fire, so that it, you will result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, of course, there's a lot in there, and that's why we're looking at this over the course of four weeks. But today what I want us to do is sort of hone in on verses 3 
and for and what this has to say to our present to make it past or what it says about our past to hopefully help us celebrate our present. He says this, he says, praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why should we praise him? Because in his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as we come into this new birth, into this new life, we also receive an inheritance that won't perish, it won't spoil, it won't fade, and it's going to be kept in heaven for us one day. So right here we see the benefits to the, of the gospel right off the bat. The benefit of the gospel for our present and for our past, if we're a believer, is that it has the power to take us from death to life. It has the power to move us from what we saw pictured of being buried spiritually under the weight of the world and the sin we experience up into a great celebratory state of a new life with Jesus. Traditionally around church, we call this salvation. We've been saved from our sins or from the things that we do wrong. And we use this word salvation to sort of give this picture that we've been rescued. The good news is that there's a rescue that God wants to take us from one place and carry us into a new place. But tied in with that, Peter and many others throughout the New Testament end up using a synonym. They end up saying that our salvation is life. We'll see all over the place it talks about a new birth and new life. You can see other people who say things like this. Jesus himself once said when he was praying to God the Father and one of his disciples, John, wrote it down. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Paul, one of Peter's contemporaries who we read about from last week in Ephesians, says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive when God took us from being dead in our transgressions into his family. There's this language all about life. And why the gospel has to do with our past is because God wants to make our present without him into a past reality. He wants us to know that in our present condition without him, we're dead. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I have bad news. You're dead. You've coded. You're zilch on a lifeline of things. Maybe you feel very much alive, but inside, spiritually, you are dead. And the reason that you're dead is because of your sin. All of us, before we meet Jesus, have been dead in our sin. And sin's just this Christian language thing that we use to sum up all the ways that we've done wrong, all the places we've failed. It literally means we've missed the mark. And we've missed the mark to live up to the life that God wants for us. And so anytime any one of us has hurt someone else, harmed ourselves, cause problems in the world around us, we have gone against God, and so we have sinned. And we're told that every time we sin, we drive a wedge in the relationship between us and God. 
And that happens because God created us to live in a perfect, harmonious relationship with him. But because he's perfect and we're not, there becomes a separation in that relationship. And there is a debt that's incurred in that. There's a cost to, to have to pay that back in order for us to be in a full relationship with God. The Apostle Paul writes, the debt that you incur by your sin is death. A life has to be given in order for this relationship to be saved. This is why when we read all through the Old Testament, there's this sacrificial system that takes place. God gave his first followers a system by which they could learn a lesson. That every time they would do wrong, there was a cost. And so they would have to go and buy an animal and give it up for a sacrifice. And then after the sacrifice was made, the relationship could be restored. But there was a problem. The perpetual problem was the people. Because I'm sure more than once on the way out of the temple after having done a sacrifice, someone sinned immediately. You know, I think if it was me and I walked into that temple and, you know, I had just forked out some cash for an animal or I had taken some part of my harvest from my field and brought it into the temple, I'd be going, okay, God, this is for me to be right with you. And then on the way out, I'd probably be like, that was way too darn expensive. You know, like I would just be so choked or miffed about it and boom, right there. Another sacrifice is needed. Perhaps I go home and I'm angry with something, you know, the traffic along the way. Say something that I probably shouldn't because I get impatient in traffic, you know? Sin, another debt incurred. The reason God gave this sacrificial system to us was so that we would learn the reality that would eventually need to be paid. That there needs to be a perfect sacrifice. That there needs to be something that can go over and above the debt we owe. The problem being, you and I can never accomplish that on our own. And so God, in his infinite love, and the language we often use is his grace, his great mercy, his big gift for us, what he did is he decided, I'm going to come to earth and pay the debt to myself. And so Jesus came to live flesh and blood, but fully God here on earth, so that he could live the perfect life that you and I know we can't live because we've already screwed it up time and time again so that he could die in our place and in the place of any other sacrifice that could take place to actually pay the price that could go above and beyond everything we could do after we tried to give a sacrifice. And so God came to offer himself to provide a better way. A better way to what? A new life. But what does it really mean to have a new life? Well, it means the opportunity to get to live with God in his presence. A lot of us have been taught, and there's truth to this, but it's not the full picture, that the reason we need to be saved is to escape from hell. And it's true, there's very much a, a reality of heaven and hell, but what is hell? Hell is the absence of the presence of God. So when we're saved by God, we're not avoiding some punishment. We're actually re receiving some type of reward. We're receiving a great inheritance from the creator of the universe, the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords. He gives us something that will never perish or spoil 
or fade away. He gives us himself. He offers us an opportunity to be with him in the fullness of who he is. And we hear this tension of Peter all throughout these verses because he skips back and forth between how this good news of Jesus meets us in the past and how it meets us in the present and how it meets us in the future because this is all taking place all at once. The gospel means something for our past because it means that we have an opportunity to leave our present dead state and come into life. But it also means in that present life, we get to experience God. We're told that when Jesus left, anyone who would follow him would receive his Holy Spirit, God living with us. But we also know we live in a wickedly messed up world. And so there's always going to be sin. There's always going to be brokenness. And so our vision of the gloriousness of God will always be partially obscured until one day when we will experience a physical death and a physical resurrection into heaven when we will see the full goodness of God. That's why he says you've got an inheritance, but it's also coming later. You've got a present situation, which if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to rectify. But when you come into that relationship with God, you have a great reward. But wait, it's going to get better. And we're going to talk all about that a little bit more in a few weeks. But this is what Jesus talks about when he says, this is eternal life that you may know my Father in heaven, the only true God. The good news about Jesus for our past is he has the ability to take it and remove it from us. So that we can never be dragged back into a place of death and owing with God. But we can be restored in full relationship to experience all of who he is. The question though then is how do we receive that? How do we actually go about taking this benefit from God? He's handing it out. We're told that the good news is that God offers this as a gift. How do we receive that gift? Like, what, what is the mechanism by which we have to do this? Well, we know it's not having to pay a sacrifice. There's no monetary cost. There's no work or duty. So what is there? Is there a right answer? I think, sadly, a lot of people sum up receiving the gospel in their lives as being able to have the right answers, the right knowledge about who God is. I picture it a lot like a scene from the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you've seen that movie, you might recognize this scene that's going to come up on the screen of when King Arthur and his men arrive to a bridge. There's a bridge and an old grizzled bridge keeper who stand in the way of them and being able to get into the castle where the Holy Grail is. And as they, they come up, they sort of watch him hesitantly at first, and then the first knight decides, I'm going to go. I'll sacrifice myself, king. Let me offer myself. And he comes up to this old man, and the old man says, I'm going to ask you questions three. Answer them correct, and you can go safely across. Ask, answer them wrong, and you'll be cast down into the abyss. 
And they do this great tongue-in-cheek thing about what's someone's favorite color and what's the uh, average flight speed of a swallow, uh, you know, and, and it just becomes ludicrous. But what we do is we have this picture in our mind sometimes, wrongly, I think, that we go, well, if I can get up to the gatekeeper, if I can have some type of encounter with Jesus, it's going to come to me being able to answer the question right. And if I get it wrong, I go to hell. If I answer the question right, I get to go into heaven. I got to know the code. I got to have the right answer. But this isn't true. We're told that even Satan and his demons know the right answers about God and what it means to have and receive eternal life. So surely that can't be all there is. And it's not about being able to even say and do the right things. There's this great thing that has been a tool that has helped many people that, that lots of us might be familiar with. It's called the sinner's prayer. And it used to be this offering of saying, hey, if you say these words, you're going to be saved and get a relationship with God. But the problem is the words aren't some type of magical incantation. They're not some type of way that we can be right with God because we unlock the code and now we speak his language. No, all they ever were meant to be was a way for us to articulate with our mouths the inward reality of what our hearts and minds believe about God. You see, as Peter wrestles here and he talks about receiving the gospel, that he says it's through faith in what Jesus has done that we get to receive eternal life, a life with the living God for now and eternity. And when we use this word faith, what we really mean is trust. When I trust someone, I take them at their word. I believe in not just what they say, but I will actually follow through with where they point me to go. Trust in someone always is proven most when there is a real life uh, implication to that. When there might be a consequence we face if we do or don't listen. For me, one of the best uh, pictures of this is rock climbing. I used to be quite an avid rock climber, so was my wife, and uh, I remember the very first time we had to go, or we decided to go rock climbing together in the Canadian Rockies. This was our, our first opportunity to really trust. If you don't absolutely trust your partner when you're rock climbing, there's no point. Because the implication of falling 30, 60, 90 meters off a rock cliff is significant. When you first start climbing with a partner, what you do is you set up all your gear together and you watch each other. And you have language that goes back and forth so that you know you can trust someone. And it's known in the climbing community that if someone screws up in the initial setup, you are never going to climb with them. Because if they can't be careful at the beginning, you don't want to be with them later on when stakes get high. So I remember going with my wife and we were just outside of Nordegg, Alberta, and we hiked up from the highway through a trail up onto a cliff face uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 meters from the base below. 
And we had to set up our gear and get anchored in, and we made the decision that Amy was going to be the first one to belay down. She would repel while I belay her. This is a test of trust. I mean, she had to lean back on a rope that I had run through some anchors and trust that I was going to hold her when I could not see her as she went down the 30-something meters. But why could she trust me? Why did I then trust her as I came down the pitch after? We trusted one another because we had seen that we could deliver on our promise to provide a safe passage for each other. We've double-checked. We've watched one another. We've got to know each other in relationship, and so we could trust. And I knew from that moment on that I could trust Amy in anything. By the way, if you're dating anyone or engaged, go rock climbing. Great way to know if that marriage is going to work. But similarly, this is, this is how we can approach our faith in Jesus. To trust in Jesus means we acknowledge that he's right in everything. And then it means that if he's right in everything, we're actually going to follow him in everything. Receiving the good news of Jesus isn't just an intellectual ascent where we have the right answers. It's a life pursuit of following the trust we have in him. Well, how do I know I can trust him? How can I take that trust fall if the stakes are so high to deal with eternal life and death? Well, because Jesus delivered on his promise. Before he ever went to the cross, Jesus said, I'm going to die and wait three days and then be raised back to life. And then he did. He taught incredible lessons to people about how if they lived in God's way, There would be benefit for human flourishing. And when you live it, and when you saw him live it, you see the reality that comes to life. We know that we can have a confidence in him because of what he's done. The question is, are we willing to go there? This is the invitation he has. As I've pursued Jesus, I would be able to tell you that I think you should. I've seen God answer prayers. I've seen him prove that his ways are better than mine time and time again. When I've done things that, you know, internally I would question, but externally have been validated to me through his word, through the lessons of other believers who have gone before me, I've seen how he can provide. And so he invites us to step on him. He invites us to trust him and follow him. In all things. And then he says, I'll be present with you for now into eternity. How do we know if it works? How do we know if the gospel has actually taken our present and made it our past? Well, there's a couple of different things here. The first one I want to touch on, though, is, is, is this idea of a fear, first of all, that might be bubbling up inside of some of us. I mean, if it really matters if we truly have a relationship with Jesus, that should cause us a little bit of anxiety because it should cause us to question and think, am I in line with what he's taught? 
And I know that's how I grew up living. Actually, for most of my teen years, uh, I would do like an annual recommitment of asking Jesus into my heart. Like this is the language we used all the time when I was growing up. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Do you know he's there? And so every time I was at camp, Every time I was at a youth conference, whenever I was at youth group or sometimes in my home by myself, I would say, hey, Jesus, I want to ask you into my heart because I'm not sure if you're there, but I know this is important. And I mean, the the intent is good in that. For anyone else, if if you're hearing me, I'm not mocking you. I've been there. The intent and the heart behind that is good, but the, the, the thinking is off. Because the reality is uh, the assurance of our salvation, the assurance of our eternal life isn't up to us. It's not up to whether we ask the question right, whether we said the sinner's prayer with the right words, whether we have the right answers, whether we can pay the ultimate sacrifice. Our answer and our assurance is in Jesus alone. Even though Jesus invites us to trust him, he acknowledges that he knows we're in a struggle time and time again. That's why scripture in many different places says that it's Jesus who's got us, not that it's us holding on to Jesus. There's a both and. I live in Christ as Christ lives in me. Our assurance is based on him. The prophet Isaiah reminds us of this. He once said, surely God is my salvation and I will trust and not be afraid because the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. It's his doing, not ours. That's the reason we can trust. A pastor named JD uh, from down in the States tells this great story of wrestling through all this. Uh, he, He came to this place where he knew that there was a profound implication to the reality of heaven and hell. And so, like me growing up, he wrestled through the different things. Uh, Do I? Did I? Will I? What's going on? And so one day he went to the director of this Christian camp and he just poured out his heart. He's like, man, like this is just stressing me out. Would you help me? I don't know, but this is significant, but I think so, but today I don't. And he just kind of pours this out and the, the, the camp director just listens to him patiently and then says, let me give you a passage of scripture for you to figure it out. And so you can write this one down. It's John 3.36. John 3.36 in the NKJV says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. And so the camp director turned to JD and he says, How many categories of people are in that scripture? JD looks, okay, there's those who believe in the Son and those who don't. There's two correct. Which one are you? Do you want to know if you have the assurance of salvation? Well, do you believe or do you not? If you have questions about that, I would love to help you. I'd love to meet with you and wrestle through doubts or struggles. We have many other great community group leaders who would do that, other staff, other elders. If you want, come to us. We'd love to work it through. But really, if you want the assurance, just ask the question, do I believe or do I not? And my encouragement to you would be if you're stressed out about it, there's probably a mighty good chance you do believe. (laughs) Because why else are you so stressed out if you've got it right or not? 
Because the Holy Spirit has already got a hold of your heart and he wants to bring you deeper and deeper into understanding who he is and how he has made your past your past and a present reality, eternal life. The second way, though, that we can know if our dead self is in the past is through a thing called the fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul tells us that when the Spirit lives in us, as we follow Jesus, as we learn to trust, that there should be some evidence in our lives. It's like when you look at a tree, is it dead or is it alive? Well, does it have leaves and fruit on it or does it not? He tells us, he, sa he says in Galatians, that there will be evidence of different fruits. There will be love and joy, which Peter talks about in the passage we read. There will be peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Why do those things become evident? Because they're the characteristics of Jesus. And so if we trust in Jesus and we live in the way that he calls us to, which is about receiving the good news, then we should begin to look more and more like Jesus. I don't know about you, when I hear the list of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, I don't see my old self before coming to faith in Jesus on that list. It's just not there. But what I see as I've grown and walk with Jesus is more and more of that fruit come to life. And I'm far from perfect, folks. We know that. Those of you who know me well know I'm far from perfect. There's a lot of spaces where that fruit is not yet produced. But how I'll know that the gospel is working in my present to make my past a distant reality is that more and more of that fruit will grow. I hope, I really hope, for my own sake, for my wife's sake, for my kids' sake, for our church's sake, for God's sake, that I am a lot more patient a couple years down the road. I hope that I'm a lot more joyful. I hope that I have a lot more gentleness and kindness when I'm struggling and frustrated. And as those things begin to grow, what I'm going to be able to do every day as those things grow is celebrate more and more of what God's done and what he's distanced me from. Folks, do you want to know if you're living in the way of Jesus? Go to Galatians. Read what Paul says. Make a list of those fruits. And then evaluate, have I grown? If you're brave, ask your spouse or a close friend or your kids or a coworker, have I grown? Now, this isn't a judgment thing. This isn't for us to sit there and, and look around the room and go, oh, that person's not really with the Spirit because they're not very joyful today. No, it's not what this is for. It's not a measuring stick. And, and frankly, some of the people I know who have experienced most growth are the people who you would recognize it in the least because they've had the furthest to go. I've known people who are addicts and murderers and bank robbers and embezzlers who have walked through the doors of our church over years, who have become my close friends, who have grown far more than some people who see, seem churchy and good on the outside. 
I know when I look at my heart and what it's capable of over the years as I've seen things get carved out, that there is an amazing amount of work that God can do. The question is, will you trust in him to let it happen? If you're here and you haven't yet received the good gift that God is offering you, I would encourage you to look at the person of Jesus what he taught, how he lived, how he delivered on his promises, and trust in him. Allow him to take your present dark and dead reality and move it behind you. Step into the wonder and amazement of being able to sing the words like we sang where we can see with our own eyes how good and glorious God really is. For those of us who are maybe struggling and we're wondering where God is in our lives, look at the fruit. Don't beat yourself up on on where you haven't got yet, but look at where God has brought you from. Because as you do that, I am pretty certain it's going to change your perspective of what the good news means for you and your past. God, we thank you that you invite us into relationship. God, we thank you that you invite us into a place where where good things can grow in us. And God, sometimes it's so easy, at least for myself, to to look at me and see all all the flaws and everything that's wrong, but to know that you working in me can, can produce good fruit in those areas. God, I thank you for that gift. And I pray that gift God, I pray that not a single person who's in this room today would go through their life without knowing you. And I pray that every single person who receives you would be able to see fruit. And God, would we not get bogged down in the places where we fail, even though we know you you want us to grow and learn to trust you more in different areas, but God, we need more room for you to bring your goodness in. And so God, I just pray that you would move in such a way that we would be a people forever changed and that our good fruit would then be evident for other people to see so that they might come on in to your family too. So Lord, now as we turn to sing these next couple songs, I pray that you would just allow us in the places where we have celebration in our heart to declare them and to to sing out with conviction about how good you are and how amazing it is what you've done but in the places where there is darkness or who you are would you give us that gift today we pray in jesus name amen